Hello, and welcome to Bonnets at Dawn. I am your host, Lauren Burke, Team Bronte, and this is a special bonus episode this week where I am joined by Caitlin Rosberg, who is also Team Bronte. I am very Team Bronte. Hardcore Team yes. Bronte. <laughs> <laughs> so um, Caitlin has a lot going on. I do. Your your bio, your resume is long. Um, one of the things that you do is that you're on the board for the Chicago Nerd Social Club. Did I? Yes, you got that so right. That right. Well done. Yes. <laughs> I wanted to go Chicago Social Nerd. No, Chicago Nerd, Nerd Social. Social Club. Yep, there you go. Okay, good. And then also um, a critic for Paste Magazine, comic critic for Paste yep. Magazine. <laughs> And for the AV Club, who yep. just won an Eisner, like, last month? Two uh, months ago? July, so two months ago, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, nice. Fresh off an Eisner win. And, of course, I know Caitlin from Ladies Night Anthology, which I have told you guys a little bit about, but um, I'm going to have Caitlin tell you a little bit more about it today, because we have a Kickstarter going right now, right this very minute. It's the last week, pretty much, of the Kickstarter. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, we'd love your support. So Caitlin, why should people support Ladies Night Anthology? Um, so I think if you are even, you know, tangentially interested in comics, um, it's it's pretty easy to find people on Twitter, especially talking about the fact that we don't just need diverse comics, we also need diverse creators. Because um, most of the biggest comic scandals lately have, in my opinion, been a result of the fact that all of the folks that work on comics look pretty much identical. Um, and mm-hmm. one of the reasons I love Ladies Night so much is that we work exclusively with um, female or non-binary gender non-conforming individuals that want to make comics and might not know how. Uh, the vast majority of the folks that we work with have either never made a comic before or never collaborated to make a comic before. And a lot of anthologies out there will give you some really incredible stories, but they're coming from folks that have made comics and they're coming from folks that have a lot of experience. Whereas the folks that we work with really are coming to us quite fresh a lot of the time. So um, as editors, you know, Lauren, myself, Summer, um, Megan, and Chris, we actually are very handholdy and very cheerleadery throughout the entire process. We lead everybody from step to step. We give people a lot of advice. We host workshops. We do a lot of stuff to really help people get their foot in the door. And I think that the I love comics. Like everybody who knows me knows that I have a deep and abiding love for comics. And I just want comics to continue to be better and more accessible for everybody, both on the buyer side and the creator side. So right. for me, that's a lot of what Ladies Night really stands for is the the ability to create a sense of community and help people build skills that will translate with them through their entire careers. And like the fact that I can walk into Graham Crackers where we have our monthly ladies night meetups. And right now there's an IDW book where the entire artistic team is all ladies night anthology veterans. Um, Jen St. Ange, who did the cover for volume four is doing the art for, I'm going to mess this title up. I think Um, Gem and the holograms, the misfits infinite. Um, and I think Brittany, you're right. Yeah. Okay. And Brittany Peer, who was in volume three, is doing the coloring for that art. So like the ability that like knowing that we helped give people the confidence and the skills that they needed to go out and get these jobs is super motivating to me. Yeah, it's awesome. So when you support a ladies night project, you're not just, you know, getting a book and you're you're actually supporting a community and yeah. helping us grow our community and get women jobs. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Which is We're job what creators. our goal is. We're job <laughs> <Yeah>. creators. 
<laughs> and we don't we don't get any money from this Mm-mm. either, too, by the way. We are volunteers. All of the money goes um, back into printing and then tabling, workshops, all of that good stuff. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and if you you're an should... enamel pin addict, we have some really oh, yes. freaking cute pins this time around. So, fully super cute. Yeah, yeah. I love those little sisters pins. So, yeah the um, the theme of this anthology is sisters, mm-hmm. and then doing it for themselves is sort of the the zine theme. I might have all about- a mild problem with Whippy Goldberg and Sister Act and needing <laughs> to say sisters doing it for themselves repeatedly. But it really it really fits too, it like the mission. <laughs> it really does. I mean, yeah. Cause it's our fifth year. We wanted sort of the book to be about celebrating our creators and also talking about how do you do this? How do you get involved in this business? And you know, how do you how do you do lettering? How do you do coloring? Yeah. How do you, there's a lot of steps to comics that I think people don't really realize. Yeah. And um, we want to make that process as easy and transparent and, you know, as possible yeah. for people who are just now getting into the business. So yeah. yeah. Support Ladies Night are um, just go to Kickstarter and just type in Ladies Night. We'll pop up. Yep. Our book is ten dollars. It's a really reasonable price, but it you really can bump is. that up to twenty for the for the pins. Yeah, I, for the pins twenty are a good bucks. Price. For twenty bucks plus shipping, you get the book, the physical book, and two enamel pins, which is what you would normally spend just for pins. Like I have certainly yeah. bought two pins for ten dollars each, in, not including oh, yeah. shipping before. So like this is a pretty primo deal. Yeah, it's an excellent deal, and um, starting today, if you back our Kickstarter and Emmett Comics their latest Kickstarter, which is um, Jelly Vampire. Mm-hmm. Really, really cute. Really, really funny. Um, these are comics by, I believe she's from Norway or yes. from Sweden. Okay, she's from okay. Norway. Yeah. Okay. Ida Neverdahl. Um, really cute cartoonist. Very fun, goofy comic. I would say it's like if you liked um, Adventure Time, Mm-hmm. If you're sort of into that yeah. space, like I think this actually like this will be up your up your. I was alley. I was gonna say like if you're into a lot of like booms stuff right now, like Kim Reaper and Lumberjanes, yeah. it's very cartoony, it's very cute, it's very funny. Like it's really I've I've seen her stuff before outside of this Kickstarter, and I really like it. Yeah, so I think if you go ahead and get our book and get the Emmett comic books then um, Emmett Comics will also send you a bonus pin. So you get a little present from Emmett Comics. Mm -hmm. Um, It's a good deal. And even though it's 90 degrees today in Chicago, I will say like (laughs) Christmas is around the corner. So (laughs) these would be good Christmas presents. They're all ages books. Yep. So, you know, if you're looking for something special to get a young comic lover in your life, I think these are two books that you should totally take a look at. Well, and I also know so, yeah. our book has a dragon in it, and her yes. book has a unicorn in it. So if you feel the need to make them a matched pair, I think that they will fit together very nicely. Very cute. Yeah. Very cute. <laughs> <laughs> I will say there's a really nice range of stories in our book, too. Like, I yeah. edited a Western, yep, um, which is about twins by twins. And, twin and other twins. And twin uh, writers. <laughs> And um, let's see, the other story that I edited was sort of like a family comedy. Mm-hmm. Um, and then what was what was yours? Uh, so mine is a slice of life story about a okay. couple. Um, and it's, I, I'm going to admit the first time I read the script, I laughed so hard I snorted my iced tea. 
Like it's it has these really great comedic beats and um, it's very clearly like a true to life story from the writer Ellen Linzer. Um, and the art from Jade is just um, this was the first time that Jade had really hand lettered something pretty uh, substantial and it looks amazing. And that's I feel like that kind of thing really helps you understand what Ladies Night is all about is that there's these people pushing their skills like let's talk about kerning and color holds and how to use color to portray the passage of time because there's a lot of conversations that if you are just learning comics or you're you've only ever created by yourself You've never done that process of of working through a problem. You just kind of tackle it by yourself. And I think it's really neat to watch people figure those things out together. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. This was a hardcore lettering year for Ladies Night, too. It was. And honestly, I learned how to letter because of Ladies Night. Like there was one story <laughs> that someone really needed help lettering. So I watched all of the tutorials that um, we'd got we'd made for all of our creators over the years. And I went and just taught myself how to do it. And And then I was talking later to a couple of professionals that work, um, you know, David F. Walker has spoken very frequently about the fact that he letters a lot of his own books, because it is yeah. a really marketable skill for a writer to have, because it can save the artist so much time if the artist doesn't yeah. need to letter it, or if you don't need to hire a separate letterer. Um, and that's, it's pretty neat as an editor to even acquire those skills, just because we needed them. Do you think... Um and I don't mean to turn this into a lettering conversation, even though I could do a podcast just <laughs> about could. lettering because yeah. I feel very strongly about it as a writer and an editor. Um, but has it sort of affected the way that you when you critique books, when you're reviewing books, really, do you pay more attention now to the lettering since like acquiring that skill? I actually pay more attention to all of the visual parts of a comic having helped artists make comics because I am... Mm -hmm. I'm lucky if I can draw a straight line on a good day. Like I'm not a visual thinker at all. I am very linear and I'm focused on writing, which is part of the reason that I thought I wanted to be an editor. Um, but lettering definitely like, um, I remember picking up the first copy of Descender, which would have been about two years ago and looking at the lettering and getting blown away because it's one of the few books that the letterer uses a lot of different colors and a lot of different fonts and a lot of different bubble shapes to indicate who is speaking, what their tone is, what the impact on the page is. And just thinking to myself, why don't more people do this? Like, yeah, you have right. like the little boxes. If you're reading a, a superhero comic, you can always say, oh, yeah, there's a little black box with the Batman symbol. That's a Batman thought, right? Mm -hmm. But there's very little deviation in terms of how people use lettering to tell a story. And I think that it's really right. taught me to pay attention to that more for sure. Yeah, yeah, it's a skill. It's special. I mean, comics, like, my God, it, it's so hard to make. First of all, it's so hard to make a book. So mm -hmm. <laughs> can I just say, you know, when I was an editor for in children's publishing, I felt like it was a miracle every time we got a book to the printer. But um, comics, I think, especially... And we're really going to get into this today. Yeah, like, I feel bad because we're going to rip on this. And now I'm like, no, we should say <laughs> that they probably worked really hard on it and put a lot of effort in. They probably worked really, really hard on it, but it does require every member of your creative team to be firing on all cylinders, really. Oh, yeah. you, Your editor, your letterer, your artist, multiple artists sometimes are involved. You know, sometimes an artist is doing everything, mm -hmm. but a lot of times there's a penciler, there's an inker, 
you know, there's a colorist. Yep. And there might be a flatter a on top of that. Like there's right. So How there's many people, a lot of people involved. Every once in a while, if somebody tries to like fake geek girl me and I'm just not in the mood for it, I'm like, great. Can you name a flatter that works at Marvel? Right. Like, I, you know what? I might not be able to tell you what issue of whatever series that one character did that one thing, but I understand comics, man. Like, don't try to yeah. get in my face about this. <laughs> <laughs> so it is a process. Yeah. Um, I know that we have a lot of people that listen to this podcast that are, they're not comic readers. Yeah. So I do want to like, just get that out of the way where, you know, my God, I have worked on stories where there has been an editor, an assistant editor. A penciler, an inker, a colorist, a separate letterer, mm-hmm. <laughs> and then a writer. So you have seven people. <laughs> and that's not even bringing in like yeah. design producers that help to do right. pre-press and do all the logos and do the book design. Like that's right. on the publisher side as opposed to just the individual title side. There's making a comic takes so many freaking people, no matter how you cut it. Yes, it's crazy. So with that in mind... <laughs> We are going to discuss the Jane Eyre graphic novel adaptation. Yeah, we are. Oh, my God. I have my copy this time in front of me. Yes. I, <laughs> I'm, I'm just here. showing it to Caitlin, even though she's got hers in oh, front God. of her as well. And I, it I is, will. Um, oh, go ahead. <laughs> no, I was just going to say I, I wanted to tell the story of like you had asked me if I wanted to talk to you about this book. And I went and looked it up and I was like, fuck, yes, I want to talk about this book. And so I put mm-hmm. in a pre-order um, and then literally the next day got a package at home and Arcadia had sent me an advanced copy to do a review of. And I was yes. like, all right, yes, I can cancel the pre-order. I've got it. Great. There's nothing holding me back now. So full disclaimer, I did get this copy for free. That did not impact yes. my opinion in the slightest. <laughs> as you will be able Which to tell is- as we talk. <laughs> Right. Which is, I will say, first first point is that it is $24.99. Yes, it which is. Which is a, a lot. It's a hefty price, uh, honestly. And I mean, I think it's because it's Archaea. Like, I don't yeah. know that I've ever seen an Archaea book that was softcover. I've only seen them yeah, do hardcovers so. before. Um, and for those who don't know, Archaea is owned by Boom that I mentioned previously that does a lot of YA specific titles um and so that's worth keeping in mind for who the the audience for this probably is Arcadia right. used to do the physical prints for Gunner Craig Court which is a really excellent webcomic um and a couple other similar like fantasy YA titles so that it this is firmly planting this book where they think it's going to be audience wise right so and, and it's a beautiful hardcover too. Mm-hmm. And the cover is gorgeous. I will put um, pictures on our Instagram and our Twitter. You can go ahead and look at those. And I'll do some interior pages as well. It would look beautiful on a shelf. I mean, it's going to yeah. look great in a library display. Um, it's very, you know, yeah, physically pleasing to look at. But the cover itself, I mean, does not say Jane Eyre to me in the slightest. Mm-mm. There's not Mm-mm. one element on the cover that makes me think about Jane Eyre. If the so the title is just Jane, right? And um, it's by I'm gonna is it a lot Aline Aline? I think Aline. Okay, yeah, Aline Brush McKenna, who's the producer and slash one of the writers for Crazy Ex Girlfriend, and the art is by Ramon K. Perez, who a lot of comics fans will definitely recognize, but. I do appreciate that they call out the fact that um, he did the art for Jim Henson's um, 
oh my goodness, what is it called? Tale of the Sand. Tales of Sand. Yeah, mm-hmm. which is a really, really excellent book and and quite beautiful. And like, I mean, Lauren, you're right. This is a beautiful, beautifully constructed book. But if the cover yeah. said Annie or Lauren yeah. or Caitlin, it would yeah. have the same intonation to me. And I find it yeah. mildly offensive that they've trademarked it. Yeah. Like, yeah. it's Jane TM. And I'm like, did you? Okay. Really? <laughs> really? And the reason why they've done this, and Aileen has been pretty upfront about this, she also is the screenwriter behind uh, movies like 27 Dresses and uh, The Devil Wears Prada adaptation. Mm-hmm. And this was a script. So she's pretty upfront that this was a script first. And then it's also, already been optioned to be a movie. And yeah. she just also sold it as a book, basically. Yeah. So those two things kind of happened simultaneously. We did read an interview with her in Comic Book Resources, where she was pretty upfront with saying, like, I didn't want to do a typical comic book treatment or script. Um, I pretty much just gave the movie script to Ramon. And then we had a bunch of conversations about it. Yeah. Which I have a lot of problems with. Yep. Uh, number one, there is technically no typical comic book script, mm-hmm. um, which is is kind of sad. This industry kind of maybe does need a little bit of a standard. Yeah. Um, and we always, with Ladies Night, we teach everyone Dark Horse format, which yep. actually reads very, very much like a script. Mm-hmm. But there is a big difference between writing a script and writing a comic book script. Yeah. Um, and that is something that I think I have to drill into the heads of the ladies night artists or writers every single year. Like, oh, there are too many actions in this panel. You need to pick one action that's most important. Yep. Or there is way too much dialogue. Like what is important? You need to pick moments that tell your story. Yep. Um, and it's it's different. Every review I've read of this so far calls out the fact that Perez managed to make this not just look like a sequence of storyboards. Which is yeah. really telling. And I think that that's also a testament to his skill that he managed yes. to turn a movie script into something that genuinely looks like a graphic novel. Like it really genuinely yeah. does. Yeah, he is wildly talented. Yeah. Like I can see why she picked him, you know? Or However, whoever picked him. Like, or I'm whoever. Not, yeah. yeah. Like, I mean, he is, uh, he's one of my favorite artists. So normally, like hearing something like this, like, oh, Archaea is doing an adaptation of Jane Eyre with Ramon Perez. Like, that would really excite me normally. Yeah, yeah. To be honest. But this book, just, you know, long story short, guys, it really falls flat in a lot of It's a piece of trash, honestly. (laughs) Like, it is, I, after I finished it, I looked at my partner when I was done, and I was like, this is the second worst book I've read in 2017. And I read, I read. What was the first one? It was a Marvel book. Like, it's not even worth mentioning, frankly. But that's the thing is I read superhero comics. And this was the second worst comic book I've read in 2017. Like, that's... And again, none of this is on Perez's shoulders or the colorist that he worked with, which is um, Irma Nevelia or Knevelia. I'm not sure uh, how to pronounce Mm -hmm. that. And I apologize. This is one of the problems with, like talking about artists especially when they're from <laughs> other countries i'm like i have instead no of writing clue about them yeah. that because like at a right. certain point and 
I have the same problem at conventions and somebody's like, whose table are you going to? And I'm like, I'm going to Jeff Lemire. And they're like, you mean Jeff Lemire? And I'm like, I don't fucking know. Like nobody (laughs) says his name out loud. So the guy that writes to sender, he's neat. I'm going to go say hi to him. Come on. (laughs) But yeah, it's, it is a beautiful book that is written really poorly. And the core idea is even worse than the writing is, which is it. Oh, And I think that if we go back to the statement we made about, like, if it didn't say Jane on the cover and it wasn't pitched as a Jane Eyre adaptation, this is a perfectly reasonable romance graphic novel done with incredibly beautiful art. But it Mm -hmm. has nothing to do with Jane Eyre. And I think going back to that CBR interview she did, the book was originally called Rochester. Yes. And it's really clear when you read McKenna's like words about this book, she very clearly read this book a long time ago and fell in love with Mr. Rochester and wanted to write a book about Rochester. And then And you had made a good point earlier, actually, last week when we were talking, saying, you know what, I don't even know if she read the book. I think she saw the Michael Fassbender movie and fell in love with Michael Fassbender. And then it's because like if you if you so the Michael Fassbender movie came out like three or four years ago and it was him and Mia Wasilinski. Is that how you say Wasikowski? Yeah. The the, Something the there. girl that was in uh, the Alice in Wonderland movies with Johnny Depp, like she's mm-hmm. petite and beautiful and blonde. And that is n- none of those descriptors apply to Jane in the original Bronte novel. But Jane in McKenna's graphic novel is petite and beautiful and blonde. And Rochester yeah. is tall and dark and stormy and rich and handsome and intriguing. And like Rochester in the Bronte novel might be some of those things, but he's also a lot of other things. And I do feel right. like she 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 definitely was relying on movie adaptations, I think, more yeah. than yeah. the book. I mean, my first criticism of this book was that the character of Jane looks like Taylor Swift. Mm-hmm. I mean, it just it it's very hard to buy that this person is an invisible person who no one is noticing, who is, you know, blending into the background, who is, yeah. I mean, we talked about this too last week. She's not blending into the background. She's often wearing yellow and against very dark colors, like yeah. against, you know. So she's not, she's got a blue background wearing yellow and gold. And you're like, oh, hey, look, it's you in the center of the universe. Yes. Now, before we jump into the story of this one, can I ask you, Yeah, what is the thing about Jane Eyre that you love the most? Like, what is it about that book that you uh, relate to or, yeah. you know? Um, and I think I said this when, when we first talked about the book, but one of the reasons I'm Team Bronte instead of Team Austin is that the Brontes always write their protagonists as people that I relate to personally. They are awkward they're very frequently kind of outcasts of one variety of an, or another, usually because they're smart, but they're never really called devastatingly beautiful. And, and especially mm-hmm. because so many Austin adaptations star stunning women. And I'm like, I don't look like Keira Knightley. I'm never going to look like Keira Knightley. I don't particularly want to look like Keira Knightley. But you, you look at the Bronte protagonists and you're like, these are quite frequently homely or at least plain young women who are struggling with a lot of stuff. And I think the the biggest thing to me from Jane Eyre in particular is that it is a love story to me, but it's a love story of Jane falling in love with herself, not Jane falling in love with Rochester. Rochester's there. He's a very important part of the story, 
But so much of the stories about Jane in Jane's internal life and her struggling mm-hmm. to accept herself and learning how to build the kind of life that she wants within the circumstances that she has. And that's yeah. that's a really serious, really adult thing, but it's framed in this beautiful way that's all about Jane accepting who she is regardless of what everybody else thinks. There's no pressure mm-hmm. on Jane to have to be what other – well, the pressure is there, but Jane rejects that pressure, really. And I right. think that's that's a lot of why I've always gravitated towards the Bronte stories is like, A, I like angst. So there's a mm-hmm. significant amount of angst in these books. But like, it just – it always felt more like Jane falling in love with Jane than Jane falling in love yeah. with Rochester. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great point. I mean <laughs> – there's there's so much in that book that I love, and I, I it's hard to distill it down to a couple of things. But I will also say, like, I love the way that Charlotte Bronte um, made it a a true gothic fairy tale, mm-hmm. like taking these sort of Cinderella elements to, yeah. and 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 bringing them into the story. I mean, the atmosphere for me is a huge thing. Yeah. And um, yeah, Jane herself is a huge thing. Like, I just, yeah, she's a rebel, like, and she's not afraid to speak her mind. And mm-hmm. she's not, af- she does what she wants to do, you know, despite what society, you know, wants for her yeah. or, you know, other people in her life. And yeah, I don't know. So it's Jane's spirit and the atmosphere. And for me, really, it never has been the love story, yeah. to be honest. Um, I sort of actually have issues with the love story. But <laughs> I think I think a lot of what you and I have both talked about, though, is also the fact that so both the atmosphere and Jane's attitude are such products of the time in which it was written. Mm-hmm. Like Jane, if if Jane was just plugged into modern day, a lot of what Jane ended up doing are things that are considered pretty acceptable these days, like being a single woman, going and living with roommates, rejecting a job offer that freaked her out. Like those are all things that Mm -hmm. if a a woman in 2017 did them, if I did them, nobody in my family, nobody in my friend group would look at me and be like, oh, who's the crazy lady over here? Right. But the time it was written, it is such a gothic fairy's tale because of when it was written and how it was written. And I think that that's something that if you're going to adapt a story understanding the historical context of when the story was written is a really important thing because if you're going to update it, you have to update it not just apples to apples because it's not an apples to yeah. apples comparison anymore. Exactly. And I think that's one of the reasons why the story just falls flat. Yeah. Like there was not enough time or thought given to that at all. Well, and she cut out the first and third acts of Jane Eyre. Like yeah. the entire the the entire backstory of who Jane is as a person, like the orphanage is gone, all of that crap is gone. Yeah. There's no discussion of need. disease. Yeah, and I'm like, why am I supposed to feel sympathy for this woman? I I don't. I just don't. And there's a bunch of exposition about why she left her life behind, and it's not. I ran away from an orphanage that killed us because they got us sick and beat us. It's yeah. My my aunt and uncle didn't pay enough attention to me. Yeah, we don't even have a red room scene, right? I'm so annoyed. I'm so annoyed with that. I just don't so, understand how we're supposed to think that that's enough to like be on her side. <laughs> yeah, I just I need so it's basically missing an introduction to Jane. We open up in modern, well, you know, a few years ago in modern yeah. day, sometime. 
Um, Jane immediately looks like Taylor Swift. Um, it even has sort of like a preppy, you know, Talbot style as well. Which, yeah. you know, again, like Ramon Perez is a great artist, but like comics, you can't, it can't all be on the artist. Mm-mm. Like you have to have conversations with your artist about character design. Every visual thing informs story and writers have a, you know, a right to be in on those discussions and say, hey, like, Jane, you know, she doesn't have the money to shop at Talbot's. She looks like she's we wearing she's wearing athleisure. Like she's wearing a, a big yeah. frumpy tunic turtleneck and leggings and wellingtons. She's, she's like a Park Slope mom. Yeah. I was like, all this is missing is some Uggs and it's all of the girls I went to college with. Like this is yes. this is very much like and for the record, I went to Miami University. So this is like J. Crew University. Everybody drives a Jeep or a Passat, and like she looks like she stepped out of that picture. And that's not yeah. appropriate, even even taking into account that she's supposed to be from a rural northeastern town where fishing is the primary way people make money. Even taking yeah. into account that this isn't, you know, a gothic, like, Bronte tale. She doesn't have money. That's the whole point. It's the whole point. She is isolated. She is alone. Um, so the first couple pages, very pretty. Yeah, mm-hmm. she's talking about her parents, how they went out to the sea one day and they never came back. And yeah, we were back at that cousin's house. You know, she feels, I actually really loved this um, spread because it was all done in pencil. Sort yeah. of like the flashbacks in pencil. And then we have a, maybe a little bit of like ink wash or something. So I didn't for... get this until I reread it. This is supposed to be Jane's art. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I had to reread it. So the whole point is that Jane is an art student and the end of the story, there's an art show. And if you look at the wall, one of the paintings is the same painting from the beginning of the book. The implication being that Jane is like having a diary or something, which if that had been a theme throughout the entire book, then that would have been pretty interesting. But it's really just like awkward bookends that are supposed to replace the the first and third act of the story, which doesn't work as well. Uh, yeah, no, that should have been carried throughout. That would have been much more interesting. Yeah. Um, Because, yeah, I mean, I, yeah, again, we don't really know what the deal is, like, with her family. It's just kind of like her cousins play video games all the time. And people yell sometimes. Sometimes people yell. Um, And she ends up getting on a bus and she goes to New York City, which is sort of like another big problem for me. Because I think, again, like, you have Ramon Perez, who is a very atmospheric artist. Um, mm-hmm. I think if you want to capture the spirit of Jane Eyre, set this in anywhere. You could go upstate New York, you know, yeah. by the lakes and like all those mm-hmm. trees. You can have like a very gloomy spirit. You could go to the desert. You could go anywhere. Like I have mm-hmm. seen New York on film in comics so many times i'm tired of seeing new york i'm tired of this story like that that's i think that was like my first note where i like turned to that new york spread and i was like great it's gorgeous i've seen it i'm tired you know what would have been cool is if it was the pacific northwest if this was like like a guy that that worked at amazon or or microsoft or something and he had like the big house isolated up in the hills somewhere that would have allowed you to translate the physical isolation of rochester's home 
better than putting him in a penthouse in New York. And like you said, we've all seen the art student goes to New York to make it big, or even just twee pretty young white girl goes to New York to make it big. We've seen that story so many times that it's, you have to have a good enough excuse, number one, to adapt a classic like Jane Eyre, and number mm-hmm. two, to use a tired trope. And I don't think there was yeah. a good enough excuse for either of those things. No, no, not at all. Yeah. I just also like, I don't know what Jane's end game is here too. Like she's going to New York to be an art student. She's broke. I mean, in these times <laughs> that we live in, is this a responsible like decision to go to art school in New York City and become a fine artist? We Do we, I mean, are we all going to like pretend like there's rich and, you know, riches and fame at the end of this rainbow like oh especially because like they make it clear in the in the story about her family that she actually managed to make enough money to go to new york by being a fisherman fisher person Mm -hmm. by working on a fishing boat um i'm like if that was a consistent way to make money and you made enough money to move to new york doing that is there a reason you just didn't move out of your aunt and uncle's house and rent a studio apartment for $200 in whatever, you know, bumfuck town in Massachusetts you lived in instead of moving to the most expensive city in the country? Yeah. Great question. Unclear. Right? Like, I just... Unclear. I I I don't... Yeah. yeah. That makes it feel dated for me. Like, I feel like when I was a kid, back in the day... And like I was seeing like because this was very much my dream when I was a kid, like, oh, I'm going to move to New York and I'm going to be a famous artist. But this was a very naive thing for me to think. And then also it was like New York of the 80s is very different of New York right now. Yeah. I have friends living in New York who are making six figures who also have a second job to pay their rent. So it's like (laughs) this is it. I think that it also and this is like a personal note. But one of the reasons I like Jane is that she's very practical She's an yes. inherently pragmatic person because she's poor and she doesn't have a lot of prospects. And I'm a very pragmatic person and I've never wanted to live in New York because it's so goddamn expensive. So like I yes. was kind of offended right off the bat that they took this plain looking, homely, highly educated, but very little ambition with the exception of like, she wants to have a life that makes her happy that's mm-hmm. her ambition. And at that point, that was fucking revolutionary, you know, but like, that's right. not, that's not a huge roster of I expect to be rich and famous. I expect to be recognized for my skill. That's just I want to be happy and comfortable. And now yeah. there are a lot of people in this country where happy and comfortable and safe are still revolutionary prospects and highly ambitious mm-hmm. prospects. And pretty white girls from Massachusetts are not one of those populations. There's plenty of other types of people that a different dream, not in New York, would have been a much better translation of the Jane Eyre story. Yeah, absolutely. So it just, uh, again, it just feels like, oh, this makes it feel dated. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And not in like a cool retro way, just in like, this is dull. This is dull. Like, I've seen it. So yeah, she moves in with this, uh, well, she's got a roommate, which is right weird off the bat, because she's supposed to be weird. isolated and not have friends. Right. Not have the, this friend group who can save her and who she can bounce, you know, her ideas off of or yep. you know, insecurities off of. So, yeah. So that's a bit odd. But um, 
Yeah, she has this roommate. She goes to school. She goes to art school. The first day, they're like, hey, you need to get a job to keep your scholarship. And, and she doesn't have she, one. She moved to New she York. She doesn't have one. With an apartment already, basically, because Hector like opens the door being like, oh, you must be my new roommate. So she mm-hmm. clearly had that much of a plan, but she didn't have a job set up, which again is like, who the fuck moves to New York without knowing how they're going to pay rent next month? Yeah, a little weird. Right? It's a little weird to me. This is not Midnight Cowboy. Like, we have other no. shit going on. Right? It's crazy. Um. So, yeah, she gets a job via her school. And we're not really told what it is. She's not told what it is. It's just like, yeah, we've checked you out. It's fine. You've got this job. And the more I think about that, especially as someone who went to school to be a teacher, like I went to school to be a high school teacher and I had to get background checks every six months. Mm -hmm. How the fuck did she get a job being a nanny for this man who is supposed to be super wealthy, but also obsessed with security and privacy by showing up with her resume? She like there's no indication that she has a background in education or childcare. Like there's no. no it's basically this girl showed up from Podunk, Massachusetts, and due to movie device necess- necessity, we have to give her a job. Like there's this is right. yeah. Why? Why did she get this right. job? Yeah. Why? Who who knows? Um, just gets this job and she shows up. She shows up and she's still like, I don't know what I'm supposed to be doing. I don't right? know what's going on. And um, she's met with Magda, who's the housekeeper. And Magda's kind of mysterious. And God, I'm just looking at how many panels are devoted to this this nonsense. Yeah. <laughs> I right. feel like a lot of space is given to story that is not necessary. Well, and this is this goes back to the thing of this was clearly written to be a movie script. Because the sequence yeah. of her showing up at the building and meeting the doorman and being physically isolated into the elevator and the elevator opens and Magda is standing there. Those are all important scene setting shots in a movie that aren't yeah. necessary in a comic. And I think that that's um, the, I do appreciate the way Perez focuses on the art that's on the wall. Cause like as yes. someone who likes fine art and is intrigued by the types of art that rich people buy themselves, I'm like, mm-hmm. I recognize some of these pieces or at least who these pieces are supposed to be by, you know? And I think yes. that was actually a really neat visual cue to be like, here's how fucking rich these people are. Because there are plenty of mm-hmm. buildings in New York that have doormen that are not that status. Right. This one is very much like you took a service, you took an elevator up to the penthouse and you were immediately greeted by recognizable modern art and a scary mm-hmm. woman. And then you walked into one of those really weirdly um, Spartan minimalist modern places and an entire wall of paintings of a woman, the same woman. Yes. And that's oh. when you're like, oh, this is supposed to be creepy and you didn't pull it off. Like, this is supposed to be weird, and it's supposed to be that sequence where Jane shows up at Rochester's house for the first time and is, like, put off by the weirdness. But this is just rich people weirdness. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Right. (laughs) It does have a nice, like, Rebecca vibe to it, which I appreciate. Yeah. Um, Which would have been really cool if she had just taken, like, almost done, like, a Crimson Peak. And, like, taken a bunch of inspiration from various gothic novels. But, yeah, that would have required her to understand the difference between gothic and creepy, which, I like, she she had a 
either she had a visual aesthetic or Ramon Perez chose an aesthetic because she didn't give him anything. Yes, that, which that, is what I think happened. Yeah. And like this is this conveys wealth and it conveys potentially more wealth than smarts, but it doesn't mm-hmm. convey creepy. And I'm like, do go watch Crimson Peak. Go read Dead Man uh, uh, Mansion of Forbidden Love. That is like a hardcore gothic romance story that is creepy mm-hmm. as fuck visually and in terms of storytelling. And th- that conveys what you're trying to do and just failing. Yeah, exactly. I just, yeah, I think that this was all a decision that he made. It doesn't feel like it's something that she did. And again, I'm just going to say this to any aspiring comic writers out there or any comic writers that, you know, uh, just in general, like when we get scripts for Ladies Night, sometimes it'll say like, and then she walks into a room and I will hear from the artist, like, what kind of room is that? I've spent three hours like trying to figure out the room. Who lives in this place? Like, how big is the room? Mm-hmm. Is it shabby? Is it, you know, is it rich? Is it full of modern art? Like, all of those are important story elements that writers should be working on to craft the world because you don't just tell your story in words. You tell yeah. your story in descriptions and art. Yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah. And I just think that this, it feels to me, when you look through this book, like Ramon did all of it. Mm-hmm. And she didn't inform him. Like the so we meet Adele, who is um her charge, Rochester's kid. And we had this discussion earlier where we were like, How old is Adele? She she's the size of maybe a four-year-old, but she speaks with the confidence and inflection of probably closer to six or seven, but can be lifted and carried by an elderly woman as if she's a toddler. So there's a lot of inconsistency about how old she is. Like at one point it's mentioned that she's doing homework and like she goes to school, but she also is like still wearing footy pajamas. And I'm not saying that there's anything wrong with footy pajamas. I have footy pajamas and I'm 32 years old, but like there's, there's a level of inconsistency here. And like when you flip through, you see that the vast majority of the apartment or the, where they live, where Rochester lives is that stark modernity but then his mm-hmm. office looks like it could be from Bronte's Jane Eyre. It's yeah, filled yeah. with books. It's very Baroque. It's a little bit Rococo. There's heavy furniture. There's a massive fireplace. It's very old fashioned. But the rest of the house is starkly modern. And you like if that had been figured out more, if that had been more of a story point, that would have been mm-hmm. really interesting of like, his wife decorated the whole place or whoever, but this room was right. his man cave or whatever. But you only see that room twice in like three panels. Yeah. So there's no sense of what it does. And it does startle you. It does take you out of it. Too. Yeah. Like, oh, wait, where am I? Exactly. Because it is the only room that you're like, but what's going on? Like, I don't understand why. It is a room out of time. Yeah. And that could be a really interesting thing to create yeah. Rochester's character. But it also leaves me with the impression that this was the only room that McKenna described in detail. Yeah. And everything else was just like, he lives in a big, fancy, expensive place in New York. Right. Exactly. Not a lot of attention to detail here. Not a lot. Yeah. It's, I uh, mean, like there's a lot of artistic attention to detail. There's not a lot of choice. I think that went into what should be drawn, which is again, like I I don't want to give Perez or the colorist, like 
like a, a bad rap for the fact that this book is stunning, but just badly written. Like that's not their yeah. fault. Yeah. It's, it's true. I mean, they do beautiful. The coloring in this book is fantastic. It really is. It's uh, really one of the best coloring um, jobs I've seen all year. Yeah. It's, I, I'm, I am very intrigued because I do also want to know more about how the two of them worked together because they both mm-hmm. get coloring credits. And like when I read a couple interviews by the two of them, it wasn't clear, like, did he flat and then she colored because she gets right. the primary coloring credit. So I'm like, I just want to know how that works because I always find that relationship really fascinating because when you mm-hmm. get to um, teams that they've worked together for a long time, like Cliff Chang and Matt Wilson have worked together artistically for a while on a bunch of different um, titles. And you can tell that Matt Wilson just knows what Cliff wants, right? Like he Mm -hmm. knows how to make Cliff Chang's art really, really shine. So Cliff can like, I don't want to say he doesn't abdicate responsibility so much as he trusts his partner to make good choices. Right, right. And I think that that's a really interesting thing. It just, the book is really pretty, but like, I don't feel like, like the, after the scene where she meets her charge for the first time and it's sweet, like it's sweet as it should be with Jane and her charge for the first time. Like you mm-hmm. see her at class and then that like pulls you back out of the impression of her being isolated because she has yes. friends. Like she's talking to her roommate. She has and friends. Her she's, yeah. She's hanging out with her roommate and um, she's at class and yeah, she's, she seems like a popular gal actually. Yeah. yeah. She seemed and like, I think I mentioned the, this the first time, but it's almost like the movie She's All That. Like, you spend so mm-hmm. much time trying to convince me that this woman is unattractive, then you do a makeover and tell me that she's attractive suddenly. I'm like, no, she's been pretty the whole fucking time. Like, please don't try to yeah. lie to me about this. Right. I also, I think that, the so they do try to recreate the Rochester with the horse scene where he almost runs her over. That is the weirdest thing I've ever seen. They do it with a car. And I think that unfortunately, horses and cars do not translate. Like you can't just substitute one for the other. Well, and it's not like, I mean, he could lose control of the car, but he doesn't get out of the car. So basically she's just walking home one night in the rain and a car almost hits her. And then she's just left in the rain and then later on, it's acknowledged, like pages and pages later. He's yeah. like, oh, yeah. Like, remember that time I almost hit you with my car? Well, and especially because it's a page after she sees some rando going up the stairs to the room where she's never allowed to go. And my assumption yeah. was that that was Rochester because I know the story. So my assumption is that it's Rochester. But I'm like, so how did he get from going up the stairs to almost running her over with his car in like yeah. a page? And those two scenes are completely separated, but they have the exact same color scheme. That was the one time that I was like, I feel like the coloring should have been done a little bit differently because you can't Mm -hmm. take me from a fight with Magda to almost getting hit by the car with the same exact color palette and expect me to understand that this is separated by some amount of time. Right. But yeah, yeah, cars and horses are not the same thing. They're not the same thing. I will say, yes, this is the one story point that kind of kept me turning the page was, you know, Jane is now the nanny for Adele. And, um, you know, Magda says, there is a room on the third floor you absolutely cannot go to. And every other nanny that has tried to go up there has been fired. So I'm like, okay, what is in the room? Because, again, this is something very, very hard to translate to modern times. So I was like, is it going to be Bertha? Is it going to be, you know, a sex sex toy room like in 50 Shades of Grey? (laughs) This does honestly 
feel to me like a graphic novel version of a sort of like Fifty Shades of Grey. I feel it like does. it would have been more successful going in that route, to be yeah, honest. Yeah, because it's all of the same types of gaslighting without yes. any of the emotional weight of Jane Eyre. Because let's be real, Rochester in Bronte's novel is kind of a shitbag sometimes. And he does yeah. do some shitty things that I would argue are probably abusive. Like they are emotionally yes. abusive and physically manipulative. But he, because of the way he is written, you are allowed to sympathize without, with him without feeling like he's a good person. Mm-hmm. Like you are allowed to think of him as someone who has been put in an untenable situation and still judge him for what he's doing. And like right. the first time you get a look at Rochester, you you turn a page and it's a it's a three quarter um photo or uh, 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 illustration of just him. So it's him from the knees up that takes up oh, the yes, entire fucking are. page. And I'm like, yes. he is not okay. a I- hero. <laughs> he is not the good guy in this story. Why the fuck? I didn't even get this from Jane. Like, what yeah, the hell is, is he getting the like Michelangelo reveal for? This is insane. Okay, the first time she meets Rochester, this is crazy because, first of all, she's like, the night before, she's out with her roommate, like, I've had such a bad day. This job is so creepy. There's a room I can't go into. I'm so stressed out. I'm going to apply for another job. So she also, what is she stressed out job. about? Just like, what the, like, it, what the unclear. fuck? Unclear. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There's a room she can't go into. So she's, but she loves the kid. She loves the kid. And everything seems to be fine, except for the fact that she can't go to this room. She applies for another job and immediately gets it, I guess. How many people in New York immediately get two jobs when they're applying for them? That is not a New York thing. And then she, the next day, she's like, I am going to go into work early and I'm going to have confront Rochester because Adele is having some issues with like bullies at school and she also thinks that Rochester is neglecting his child and should spend more time with his child. Yeah. So she or, goes in loaded yeah. for bear to yell at him. Yes. And then you get a page turn and the caption is literally, there he was, dark, handsome and not blurry. And then she completely backs off all the things that she was going to yell at him about. Yeah. He looks like Bruce Wayne. He looks full he on like, like a John Hamm Bur- Bruce Wayne here. Yep. Yep. It's insane. Um, and then you know she was what? Like, I thought yeah, you were going to say gonna... John Cho, and I was like, I want a John Cho, Bruce Wayne. That's a thing I'm oh, into. I got momentarily distracted John by that. Show. <laughs> <laughs> I would absolutely do a John Cho, Bruce Wayne. Yeah. By the way, just learned that he's 46. Yeah. Nope. Insane. Right? Insane. Just yeah. Looks great. Um. Yeah. Going to no, rename John this the Ham, John Cho podcast. <laughs> Join me next Tuesday for my John Cho podcast. <laughs> but yeah, so she, Just, she goes in loaded for bear, ready to scream at him. And then he's handsome and all of her anger disappears. I'm like, that's not Jane Eyre. That's not it's anybody. It's not Jane Eyre. Interesting. Yeah, she goes in there and she's just like, I'm going to yell at you. He's handsome. And then she's like, I'm going to tell you something. Adele and I want to go out to waffles. Yeah, we want to go out to breakfast. We're going to get waffles. And he's just like, Ugh. great. Who cares? Yeah. Uh, so that so takes yeah, up a significant chunk of like her slowly inching her way back up into confronting him about stuff with Adele, which then goes back to the question of how the fuck old is Adele? Like, if you have unclear, to be talking yeah. to him about her problems at school, like, what, what? How what? old is she? I, I unclear. Don't, 
So then there is a character in this that um, is in Jane Eyre, but not in the same capacity. We have Richard Mason. Yeah. So Richard Mason, Bertha's brother, he is business partners with Rochester. So yeah. after, um, I, I'm going to keep calling her Bertha, even though she has a different name in this one. That's fine. Um, after Bertha and Rochester got married, Richard and Rochester re- started running a hedge fund together. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, again, so boring. Um, and whenever they talk business in this book, it's just like, do the accounts. Get get the Asian accounts. Yeah. Do the thing. Business. It, stocks. We We said this last time, but I think that really what it comes down to is that this is pretty mediocre Jane Eyre fan fiction in a modern AU. And in it, it relies really heavily on the nostalgia of appreciating who the characters are. Because it's pretty clear that McKenna either doesn't know anything about modern New York or doesn't care to know, doesn't care that she needs to know something about modern New York. And the same thing yeah. about being an art student and the same thing about being a hedge fund manager. There's no yeah. depth of knowledge and choices actively made, which is why I think the idea of him being... Uh, a single dad in Seattle that works at Amazon actually makes more sense because if he was like a Jeff Bezos character, fucking yeah, done. I am yeah. convinced. I am convinced that Jeff Bezos is an asshole to the people that works for him and lives out in the mountains <laughs> by himself and would be a dick to everyone. I, You don't have to yeah. convince me. Make him Steve Jobs and I already understand what you're doing. But really, right. hedge fund manager doesn't tell me anything. And it also tells no. me that you don't know how hedge funds work. Like, yeah, it's just so bland. And that's the thing. Like, the book, Jane Eyre, the Bronte sisters excel at writing characters. And they are characters that are so visual. They are so real. And like, they're so real that like a lot of people just freaking hate them. You know, mm-hmm. like they will give you a fully fledged character. Um, everyone in here is just like, I, I don't know, just these one dimensional, just, yeah, I, I don't care about any of them. I, and I don't know anything about any of them, to be honest. I think the last time we talked about this, we we uh, kind of compared it to Made in Manhattan. It's Made yeah. in Manhattan with a pretty white girl. Everybody feels like flat rom-com characters, which knowing that it was yeah. sold an option to be a movie already makes sense. But like, you you even have the montage of like, Rochester slowly warming up to her and like the one time that it did feel like Bronte's book is the one scene that they have in Rochester's office where he's sitting in a wingback chair drinking and kind of backhandedly complimenting her which felt like such a real Rochester thing of like oh you're being an asshole and nice at the same time that's exactly what Rochester would do. But then all right. of a sudden, like, he's going to lunch with them in the park and eating greasy burgers. And I'm like, not even Rochester took it that far. Like, no, no, you don't you don't have him be a bit of a dick one night. And then all of a sudden he's the dad of the year. That's not how that yeah, works. exactly. It doesn't it doesn't work that way. No. So. So, yeah. This, and then ugh, we, this Mason character. God, Mason is I mean, like the. I don't know. He I know they go out and get beers and they talk about It's like every I mean also every how scene is she getting a beer? Is, I know. How if she's old a first is year she? art it's so student. unclear. <laughs> yeah. She's out drinking with hedge fund managers. Right? Just <laughs> so shit. But um yeah, like every scene she's talking about Rochester too. 
We noticed oh, that. Yeah, this, so, like, whoever she talks to, she's just talking about Rochester. The only way like, I don't know book, anything about I know. You. The only way this book passes the Bechdel test is because one of her um, art student friends talks to her about the art show. Yeah. She doesn't talk to about the art show. <laughs> no, she doesn't. I didn't even know. Jane doesn't even really want to be in the art show. No. Nope. Again, I don't know what Jane wants. There's no, there's, I don't know either. And we do. I don't know what her end game is. We do get to the, the, the point where we, we suddenly understand why she has a gay roommate because the obligatory makeover scene, because he's a fashion student. Of course he's a fashion student and he makes her a ball gown worthy of the first night of the ballet of the season in like five minutes. Cause so yeah. Yeah. God. So Rochester (laughs) warms up to Jane just enough so that he invites her to the ballet. And um, this is like probably the most beautiful section of the book, really, yeah. visually. Um, it's very da- like Illustrating the dancing. Yeah, the watercolors are really great. That's gorgeous. And um, yeah, so they go to the, they go to the ballet. It's beautiful. Jane has a sort of like makeover moment. Um, then when she's there, she's talking to Richard Mason for a bit and Rochester gets drunk and jealous. And like, like physically grabbing her drunk and jealous, which is appropriate behavior for Rochester. But this is where I start to get a little freaked out. And I know I mentioned this to you before, but especially knowing that Arcadia and Boom target young adult audiences, One of the reasons that I actually do appreciate Rochester in the Bronte book is that, again, it makes it very clear that you are not supposed to think he's a good person. You are supposed to sympathize with the situation he finds himself in, but you are not supposed to think he's a good person. You're not supposed to think that Jane is going to fix him. You are not supposed to think that he's going to save Jane. And this Rochester is so handsome and so... Like you said, it's very Fifty Shades of Grey of like, oh, this is abusive. This is abusive and... There's none of the other markers indicating to readers that you shouldn't like this and that this isn't yeah. okay. All of those markers disappear. Yeah, absolutely. This is like, I mean, if we just remove the Jane Eyre element, like this is a story about a young woman, a young naive woman who's between, we're guessing, 18 and 20 or so, um, moving to New York. And then being controlled by a rich, powerful man who has a drinking problem, who is presumably about twice her age. Yeah. I yeah. mean, that's not something that I would, This is that's not a story I would pass down to a young person in my life. Nope. Because literally the second he apologizes, and the implication here is that he's crying, although you don't see him crying. The yeah. second he apologizes, she's all smiles and he pours her a glass of wine. Which, again, is she underage? And also, if a dude physically assaults you and then the first thing that they do is apologize, cry, and pour you a drink, that's manipulation. That's not yeah. That's not somebody genuinely trying to be a good person. That's someone trying to manipulate you into saying that you're fine. Because then he dances with her and it's, oh, so romantic. And they kiss and they go have sex on a boat. Like, yeah. Yeah, then they go have sex in a boat. They leave the kid there. Right? Like, who the fuck is with Adele? Maybe. Unclear. But, you know, they just, they're like, let's bounce. Let's walk around New York. And just the whole, like, I was jealous. And then she's like, oh, so it's okay. It's okay for you to, like, 
to to physically grab me and scream at me and cause a scene if you're jealous. Okay. No, <laughs> Again, thank you. Not a story I want to like pass down to a uh, a younger yeah. person. Um, there's a lot of real estate dedicated to that, and there is. They're like them on the boat. Like there is a great double page spread of them kissing, which is totally yeah a throwback to romance comics. I mean, this is like all drawn drawn like a romance comic. It's, yeah, it's beautiful. That double page spread is beautiful. It's great. Um, a lot of real estate. Uh, again, that makes me think that the artist just you know was like, I'm just gonna go with it. I'm just gonna blow out these moments because I don't know. Well- yeah, especially what because I'm supposed to do. There's so little dialogue of this part that, like, if you give an artist like Ramon Perez the opportunity to really focus on beautiful, fluid motion and scenery and two characters enjoying one another, of course he's going to take advantage of that. There's no reason not yeah. to. Like, and it makes yeah, sense. Absolutely. It makes sense as a romance comic. It doesn't make sense as Jane Eyre. Right. Exactly. And not to detract too much, but it does remind me of the time of like, so I was in this anthology once and I was paired up with this male artist who, um, two things happened with this male artist. Um, one, when I gave him character designs, like descriptions for the character designs, he said something along the lines of like, because they were not supposed to be attractive characters. Mm. And he's like, yeah, but I still want to like sleep with her. The dude, he was like, I'm fine with drawing the dude ugly. But the girl, he was just like, yeah, but I still like, yeah, she's going to be like, you know, plain, but I still want to like, I still want to sleep with her. So she's going to be pretty, basically, was what his deal was. For listeners, I am making a stink face right now. And I apologize that you can't see it. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. So that was one thing that was kind of eh. But then on top of it, I had this, um, the story kind of centered around this old art house theater. And I had these very detailed instructions for this theater and how I needed it to look. And he really latched on to that. And he loved drawing it. And on the first couple of pages, he just blew that out. Like mm. he just like focused on that building and added panels, you know, with more of the exteriors because he wanted everyone to see it. But he wasn't paying attention to pacing. Or like my story details. Mm. And so when reviews actually came back for my story in this like anthology, people were like calling that out like, oh, this writer has no idea how to pace a story. Like, it all came down on me. And I was like, nope, he added in extra panels. He actually took out all of the panels on the first page just to draw the building. So this reminds me of that when I look Mm -hmm. at this story, because there are certain pages where I'm like, oh, this is just tons of real estate given to this and this and yeah. this and this and then we get back to the story and it's very crammed well very and crammed, again so it feels the pacing's off a lot of this would be really excellent shots in a movie a lot of this would be really excellent and necessary shots in a movie that you just mm-hmm. don't need in a comic and you're right the sequence of from the end of the ballet and him apologizing and them having sex on a boat and then the sequence at the end of like the big reveal of everybody's in danger are the two biggest chunks of the story and they shouldn't necessarily be the biggest chunks of the story um because they aren't the most important things to jane and i feel like going back to the comment that like she originally wanted to call this rochester tells you a lot about who she was focused on while she was writing this and yeah i mean the second after they are done having sex on the boat he disappears and he bounces he leaves and then all of a sudden he comes back with a woman with no explanation 
this random yeah. brunette. Like, here's... And, like, and I think you were the one that mentioned this last time. The whole reason why Jane in the Bronte book pushes back on the women or the woman that Rochester brings home is because she's a bad mom for Adele. And you don't get any of that. Like you don't get no. any, it's just, she's there for a page and a half, two pages maybe. Yeah. Um, uh, and she gives Adele a Raggedy Ann doll. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. Like why the fuck are you Raggedy Ann? Why would a rich woman who is being courted by a hedge fund manager for work purposes, according to the book, give yeah. a, girl a raggedy ann doll unclear <laughs> oh, god and can i just say that time where rochester is gone like what makes it so successful in the book is that jane is isolated she has mm -hmm. nothing to do but live in his house and take care of this child which is her job you know she is isolated she is thinking you are getting to know jane in this book she's living her life like she's going to art school she's hanging out with her friends like, she's yeah. rollerblading in the park. Like, I don't see a reason for her to be hanging on to Rochester, to be honest. Well, and this would have been, because they do have a couple of sketches that are clearly supposed to be Jane's art. And this would have been a great time that if we'd had that vehicle of Jane doing, like, a like a journal, like a drawn journal. Yeah. That would have been really interesting to have her, like, I know a lot of artists that do that, that scribble on the side of notes and talk mm -hmm. about their day. And she's like... You know, even going to class, I don't feel like I'm connecting with anybody because I'm so physically removed. And I love being with Adele because I feel alive again. Like, you can mm -hmm. you can work that stuff in in a way that's not obtrusive, but it, it just wasn't even included here. Like, she goes out to yeah. drinks with her friends and it's like, well, why am I supposed to worry about her if she's in the largest city in the country drinking with her friends and just happens to be living at her employer's apartment while he's out of town? Yeah. I mean, it sounds actually pretty bog standard, to be honest. Right? Yeah. I so just then, feel like this, yeah, happens. So yeah, the yeah. Miss Ingram character comes in for a minute. Yeah. And Jane gets upset at Rochester. And he's like, you don't understand. This was for work. But that's never fully explained. Why the, that's not how being a hedge fund manager works. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yeah, I, yeah I'm unclear. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, maybe I, I don't know like how that, hedge funds work. I it's don't know. Not, I've worked for hedge fund managers. That's not how it works. You don't bring beautiful women home to, to have them give your children presents. That's not, <laughs> not how being a hedge job. fund manager works. It's not part of the job description. But yeah, we get the angry confrontation yeah. that immediately turns into kissing where it looks like he shoves her clothes off. And it's like... And like, here's also a point I really actually am disturbed by. Jane has this thing where she rationalizes this. She goes, well, I, I was jealous. I'm jealous of this girl that you've brought home. Just as he was jealous at the ballet. So maybe we're, we're two similar people. And it's like, no, 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 no. Not the same thing. Not yeah. the same thing at all. He not the deliberately same thing. Also, brought a woman home and threw her in your face. Right. Also, not healthy either. Like, not this healthy. is not a healthy. And like, this would have been an interesting moment where if they'd talked about, like, if they'd given us more about her aunt and uncle, like, if her aunt and uncle had a codependent relationship and, like, thinking about the way that, like, rural northeastern communities that rely on old school industry are, there's a lot of opioid addiction. We could talk about the opioid addiction in rural America and how we're failing blue-collar workers. And, the, and she could have said something about you know, this is just like my aunt and uncle and their codependency that always ended up with screaming and hitting. Like, 
But because we didn't get any of that backstory, this just feels yeah. really shitty. Like, yeah, yeah, she's yeah. just in an abusive relationship, and they like they start kissing, and then she bites him, and then she like runs away. He and, and then they get interrupted by people breaking into the house, which is yes. Yeah. This is when it kind of gets interesting. Like, I remember because I was like, oh, I want to put this book down. And then I turned the page and I'm like, <laughs> okay, all right, we have some burglars in here. Yeah. Are they going to go up to the third floor and discover his bat cave because he's truly Batman? Batman. And they do go up to the third floor, but it is not a bat cave. No, it's not, guys. <laughs> guys, this is so fucked up. It's so fucked up. I mean, it's fucked up in the book. <laughs> But it's more fucked up in the and like this goes back but to my more point of like up here. if you understand the historical context for something that right. was written hundreds of years ago, you can update it in a way that is relevant and important. But if you don't understand the historical context, you can't. And like the whole point, it's Bertha, right? Because I always want to call her Beulah for some reason. It's Bertha, and then in this version, what's her name? Isabella Isabel. or something? Isabel. Yeah, Isabel. Um. So yeah. in in. The in the Bronte version, Bertha is a crazy lady, and we can mm-hmm. we could have had conversations about the pathologizing of female emotion. Like, there's all sorts yeah. of things. And if you watch um, One Mississippi, which I highly recommend, it's yeah. Tim Nataro's Amazon show. Um, her stepfather actually goes to a book club with a bunch of retired ladies to talk about Jane Eyre, and he goes off on this rant about the pathologizing of female emotion and how Bertha is just. Uh, uh, described as uncouth and unchaste. And he's like, so did they lock her up for sleeping with other people? And I'm like, well then, okay, see, we can yeah. have those conversations. But in this, his wife is just in a coma. In the She's attic. She's in a coma. In the attic. She's Why is in a she coma in a hospital? Right? <laughs> the first question. And then again, this was another issue that I had with the um, with the character design, because this is actually something I brought up in our Jane Eyre episode. Where I talked about, um, well, so in this version, Jane Eyre walks in and she sees Isabel in a coma and Isabel looks just like her. They look very similar, which mm-hmm. is very creepy. It's like, it a, it's like a run, run girl moment. But they didn't me. lean into that skid. Like they just yeah, didn't even mention have. it. Yeah. Yeah. And she's just like, oh, this is the most beautiful woman I've ever seen. Even in, you know, even in a coma. And I'm like, Okay. All right, and we could have talked about this with the, the whole big one-page spread of all of the pictures of Isabel on the wall. We just this is the first time we're bringing up the fact that that you guys look identical. Like what the hell? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 weird and upsetting. Um, now I think you know the original Jane Eyre would have read as a really interesting statement had you know Jane Eyre walked in and seen Bertha look like a version of her, mm-hmm. you know, and then you know really. That's a really powerful statement. Yeah. Especially yeah. if she runs. That I kind of brought up in the in our Jane Eyre episode. But yeah, so that was funny to flip the page. And I was like, huh, okay. Yeah. Interesting. So and slowly, yeah. slowly through information from Rochester and then also information from Mason, you know, Isabel's brother, you find out that they were away on business or something because hedge fund manager and they got attacked, and now Isabel's in a coma. And this is what I was talking about of making Rochester sympathetic without being a good person. Because having a wife in a coma and trying to figure out what happened to her and why she was attacked turns you into a protagonist instead of yes. a character in somebody else's story. And this reminded me so much of the Scrubs episodes 
um, where she was in love with a coma husband. Like, no, he was. Sorry. It was Zach Braff's character was in love with the wife of a man who was in a coma. And they had all of the like emotional moments of, is this okay? Is her husband really mm-hmm. dead? And I'm like, but we don't get any of that. This we is don't just get a any dude who's got his coma wife up in the attic. Meanwhile, he's having sex with other people without disclosing that he's still married. Because like, right. if his wife was dead, that would be one thing. And I think you made this point the first time around in the in the Bronte book, Adele had nothing to do with Bertha. Like Adele right. was not Bertha's child. So there was no question of where did she come from. But by making right. Adele Isabel's child and making Isabel his still living but comatose wife, all of a sudden, he's a family man with a lot of sympathy but he's still a shithead because he like yeah. took away her ability to consent to the inf- to the situation. Right. Just so sh- Oh god. <laughs> Guys, I'm so sorry that we're just like ranting about this, but like it's a lot. Well, this is also the moment too where it became a harlequin like widower. Oh yeah. like romance for me. This and, is this um, is definitely like grocery store romance novel. And there's yes, nothing wrong yes. with grocery store romance novels. I read grocery store romance novels. Yeah, absolutely. But that's not what Jane Eyre is. And that's my biggest exactly. beef with this. If listeners want to check out a comic book or graphic novel um, that is close in tone and scope and truth t- to the original Bronte Jane Eyre, um, Dead Man, Dark Mansion of Forbidden Love. It is okay. a DC comic, so it does have a superhero in it. But it is the <laughs> story of a young person who inherits a an abandoned Gothic mansion that is haunted and struggles with um, a, a beautiful queer love triangle, as well as the ghosts that are taking over their home. And it is very oh, nice. much like it has that physical isolation. It has a little bit of people trying to manipulate them in the same way Rochester does. Like it is, it is really, and so it stars Dead Man, who is a DC character that is a ghost and can possess people. That is his primary superpower. And he tries to possess the main character in this comic and they push him out and cuss him out, which is such a Jane Eyre thing to do of like, no, I can feel you trying to impede on my agency and that's unacceptable. And I am not going to let you possess anybody else in this house just because it's more convenient for you. You have to have their consent. And I'm like, mm-hmm. that's a that's a far truer story than this one is. Yeah, that's so. interesting. Is that, new, like, is that new or is that? Uh, last year. Um, okay. And it was it was three oversized issues. So most comics are only about 22, 25 pages. And these were all mm-hmm. in the 30s and 40s. And then it was collected into a trade paperback. And it is also super like when I was trying to describe it to somebody, I described it as um, lemon meringue pie, because it's that kind mm-hmm. of super rich, luxurious textured art that's very retro. And she's living in a true gothic mansion that looks like a gothic mansion should look. So it's very much on the vein of like Crimson Peak and Jane Eyre. So I think people will enjoy that. Gotcha. So buy that, not this. Yeah, (laughs) basically. Basically. (laughs) (laughs) So now, Caitlin, if people want to find you on the internet, where should they look? Um, I am on Twitter where most of what I do is tell terrible dad jokes and talk about my dog at um, Crossberg, Mm -hmm. which is C. Rossberg, my last name. Um, I'm also at CaitlinRosberg.com, um, and you can find me, like Lauren said at the beginning, at Paste and the AV Club or LadiesNightAnthology.com. Yeah, there you go. Nice. 
And um, if you want to find Bonnets at Dawn on the internet, you can go to our Facebook group, type Bonnets at Dawn in the search and uh, give us a knock and we will let you in. Um, you can also find us on Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn and on Instagram at Bonnets at Dawn. <laughs> Thank you guys so much for joining us for this special episode. And um, we will talk at you later. Bye. Bye.